I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The events of this episode take place in a well-documented context. King Hormheb celebrated his coronation during the Opet Festival. The Opet Festival was an annual party in which the god Amun-Ra joined with the king and the pharaoh renewed his power and prestige. The festival is recorded in detail, and I've covered it quite recently. In episode 146, we explored this celebration and its appearance in the reign of Tutankhamun. If you are just joining the podcast, I recommend that episode. It's not essential, but it will give the important background to these celebrations. Once again, that is episode 146. Cheers! Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 161, Horus Takes the Crown. Today, a new era begins. Hor M. Heb, once a government official, has seized power and become the ruler. The new king celebrated his achievement in grand style, appearing at Karnak at the height of the Opet festival. There, Hormheb revealed his agenda as the pharaoh and he took the opportunity to legitimise his unorthodox ascent. It is a strange moment in Egypt's political history. The tale of a king establishing his reign, a pharaoh confirming his legitimacy. This is the tale of Horemheb's coronation. The year was 1330 BCE, approximately. King Ai was dead. Tutankhamun was dead. Ankesen Amun was retired, maybe? Possibly dead. We can't be sure. But apparently, the royal bloodline of Dynasty 18 had reached its end. After 200 years and more, a line of rulers was broken. Now, power was in new hands the crowns would pass to a man who, as far as we can tell, had no blood connection to the royal house. How that happened, and how this man established his rule, that is a big question. Following Ai's death, there may have been conflict. Small hints in the historical record suggest that powerful men jostled for control. This isn't certain, but it is possible that individuals or families attacked one another. Now, the struggle for power, if it happened, was over. Hormheb had won. The great general, the king's deputy, the leader of the nobles, the master of royal works, etc., etc. Hormheb 
had triumphed over opposition. He would be the pharaoh. But how does a man with no blood lineage establish himself as a pharaoh? More to the point, how does he legitimize that claim? And how does he convince others to recognize it? We don't know the exact tools that Horemheb used to gain power, violence, intrigue, diplomacy, but we do know how he justified it. Horemheb started his reign with a story. In a lengthy text, the new king explained to everyone why he was the pharaoh. We call this text the Coronation Inscription. It describes Horemheb's life and career before he gained power. It explains his achievements and his obvious excellence within society. And it gives many reasons to justify Horemheb's ascent. As you could imagine, the text is laced with propaganda, presenting Horemheb in the most favourable light. However, it's not entirely fantasy. A lengthy passage explains the ceremonies in which Horemheb received the crowns of Egypt. This part is fascinating. We don't usually get descriptions of the coronation. Pharaohs tend to skim over that and present it in vague terms. But Horemheb gives more detail than the average ruler. So from this text, we might reconstruct the occasion in which Egypt's new king came before his people. Horemheb travelled to Karnak to legitimise his rule, and along the way, the gods themselves would join the party. It is an intriguing text. The coronation inscription is long, too long for one episode, so I'm going to break with my usual habit where we go through a text from beginning to end. Instead, I'll spend this episode on the coronation itself, that is, the second half of the text. We'll explore the context and the events of Horemheb's celebrations, and we'll get to grips with his identity as a new ruler of Egypt. Then, over the next few episodes, we will cover the other parts of the text, the sections that describe his background, his childhood, and his career. This way, we can tackle each area properly, and see how it all fits together with other sources of evidence. Hopefully, the next few episodes will give us a nuanced understanding of Horemheb's appearance, his seizure of power, and the ways he legitimized it. Now then, enough preamble and context. Let's begin. Horemheb celebrated his coronation around late August or September. This was the time of the Heb Nefer Ipet, aka the beautiful festival of Opet. The Opet festival was an annual party in which Amun-Ra, Mut, and Konsu came forth from their magnificent shrines. They emerged from Karnak and Luxor, appearing before priests and the people. During this festival, the great gods received praise and offerings from the king, and Amun-Ra himself communed with the pharaoh. Together, they renewed the powers of the ruler, and helped guarantee a prosperous year ahead. Opet, one of the first festivals in the Egyptian New Year, was a massive deal. Naturally, this was a great occasion for Horemheb to establish his identity. By celebrating his coronation at Opet, the new king could link his rule with the annual cycle, the cycle of agriculture and the prosperity of the land. It was an excellent choice of date. So, late August, maybe September. 
This is where our story begins. In the month of Opet, 1330 BCE, Horemheb was sailing south. He was travelling from the north, probably from the city of Hikuptah, aka Memphis. So he was going upriver, riding a magnificent barge. An enormous ship made of cedar wood rode the currents, its sails unfurled in brilliant colours, perhaps red and green based on other royal texts. The prow of this ship would have images of the gods, and the king himself would sit enthroned amidships. Doing this, Horemheb would appear resplendent, and people on the riverbank could watch and cheer as their great pharaoh passed. As the king's barge sailed upriver, crowds may have flocked to the riverbank, and the people of Egypt, great and small, might have shown their favour. This is where our story begins. In the coronation inscription, Horemheb begins with the journey south. We meet him and a certain god travelling on the river. They are ready to begin the party. Quote, So, Horus proceeded, rejoicing, to the city of Thebes, the city of the Lord of Eternity, with his son, Horemheb, in his embrace. They went to Karnak in order to lead Horemheb into the presence of Amun-Ra, to bequeath Horemheb his kingly rule and to make his term of rule. End quote. We are starting in the middle of things. Horemheb and the great god Horus go south to the southern city, Waset or Thebes. There, the god and the king would meet with Amun-Ra, king of the gods, and the coronation could begin. That might sound like a metaphor, Horus travelling south to visit Amun-Ra, but chances are this was literal. The journey upriver probably involved a statue of Horus. King Horemheb may have brought a golden image of the god with him on the journey. Horus, lord of kingship, and Horemheb, the king himself, could sail together on great ships, and journeying together, they would approach the house of Amun-Ra. So we can imagine the king and the god sailing on great barges. On one, the king sat enthroned in his finest clothing. On another, the golden statue of Horus rode on its own cabin. This was probably a splendid image. Horemheb and Horus came to the southern city and the great houses of Amun. At Karnak, Ipet Sut, and Luxor, Ipet Resit, the king and the gods would meet. The coronation inscription describes this meeting, and it sounds quite friendly. Quote, Now, Amun-Ra, lord of the thrones of the two lands, had emerged in celebration in his beautiful festival before the southern sanctuary, that is, the Opet festival. And Amun saw this god, Horus, who had his son, Horemheb, with him, in the king's induction. Horus was arriving in order to give Horemheb his office and his throne. Amun-Ra became possessed with joy when he saw the eldest son of Horus on the day of receiving his offerings. End quote. Amun-Ra became possessed with joy on the day of receiving his offerings. I like that. It almost presents Horemheb as a birthday present for Amun. You could imagine the priests coming out of the temple with the god's shrine on their shoulders, and the idea of Amun-Ra possessed with happiness makes me imagine those priests hurrying forward to convey the god's excitement. Like an excited puppy, 
Amun-Ra came out before Horus and Horemheb. At least, that's the image the king gives us. I'm sure it was more stately and elaborate in practice. But still, the idea of Amun-Ra, king of the gods, rushing to meet his friends? That is a cute picture. The great sanctuaries of Luxor and Karnak would have thronged with people. The Opet festival was underway, and the gods themselves were in attendance. The party was in full swing, with music, dancing, free food, and plenty of beer. Give that a couple of days, and folks may have been quite excitable. Now the phrasing is a bit vague, but it sounds as though Opet had already begun. So by the time Horemheb arrived, his loyal subjects were in full-on party mode. If that's true, it's a baller image. Horus and Horemheb showing up late to their own party, waiting until everyone was in a good mood. Then, at the right moment, the king and the god would pull up to the docks, and the city, full of drunken celebration, could receive them in awe. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. So Horemheb came to the southern city, and the god Horus brought him to the house of Amun-Ra. Amun himself emerged from the shrines to greet the god and king. Now, with everyone in attendance, the coronation could begin. Quote, Then he, Amun-Ra, addressed himself to this official, the hereditary prince and chief of the two lands, Hor-em-Heb. And Amun-Ra proceeded to the king's house, having placed Horemheb before him. They went to the great shrine of Amun's noble daughter, Weret Hekau, the great of magic. The goddess's two arms were held forth in the Nini greeting, and Weret Hekau embraced Horemheb's beauty, and she fixed herself upon his forehead as the crown. All the Enneads celebrated at his appearance, Nekbet and Wadjet, Neith, Isis, Nephthys, Horus, Seth, and the entire Ennead, which was before the Great Shrine. End quote. The coronation was remarkably brief. Did you catch it? Horemheb travelled with Amun-Ra to the House of the King, the Pernesut. This would be the palace, somewhere near Karnak or Luxor. There, in the secluded halls of power, Horemheb received a crown. A crown that, conceptually, embodied the goddess Weret Hekau. Weret Hekau, great of magic, was an old goddess. She usually takes the form of a serpent, and she could act as a protector or nourisher for the king. References to Weret Hekau go all the way back to the Old Kingdom, but she's been around recently too. In the tomb of Tutankhamun, Weret Hekau appears in the guise of a nurturing figure. She gave nourishment and supported young Tutankhamun. 
So the goddess Weret Hekau has a symbolic role as a protector and caregiver for the king. In this case, Horemheb is wearing a crown that will literally guarantee his security and his power. That's quite a flex. So Horemheb received Weret Hekau in the form of his crown. With that, the coronation itself was achieved. It is remarkably brief, and chances are the king has omitted a lot of detail and ceremony here. But then again, maybe it was just that simple. By the time of his coronation, Horemheb had already established his authority. Perhaps this was just a formality. Either way, there was still much to do. Once he received the crown, great of magic, Horemheb also received praise. The gods themselves came to honour and acknowledge Horemheb. At this point, we can imagine statues, gold and glittering, arrayed in the palace. The shining bodies of Horus, Seth, Isis, Nephthys, Nekbeth, Wajet, and more would congregate before the new pharaoh. And those statues, those gods, would display their approval. That may not sound important, more like a throwaway line, but arguably, these little moments are actually the most important part of the text. You see, the coronation inscription spends a lot of time explaining how people and gods recognised Horemheb's greatness. The text goes on, at length, about various groups honouring and praising Horemheb for various reasons. This praise, these acclamations, seem to be the main thrust of the text. Basically, Horemheb is emphasising that everyone, humans and gods, recognised and celebrated his authority. It almost sounds like he's trying to convince us. This focus on celebration and acclamation gets stronger as the text continues. Now that the coronation itself has occurred, Horemheb focuses entirely on his appearance before the gods and the people. In the next passage, the divine beings call out their praises for the king. Quote, All the Enneads celebrated at his appearance. They performed praise to the limit of the sky, rejoicing at Amun-Ra's satisfaction, and saying, Behold, Amun has come to the palace with his son in front of him. Amun comes in order to establish the crown upon Horemheb's head, and to exalt his lifetime, which is like that of the god. We are gathered together so that we may secure Horemheb's crowns for him, and to assign him the insignia of Ra, and to glorify Amun on his account, saying, You have brought our protector to us. Give him the jubilees of Ra, and the years of Horus as king. He, Horemheb, will do that which pleases your heart within Karnak, and also within Heliopolis and Memphis, he is the one who shall enrich those places. End quote. The gods, or their priests, let out a mighty cheer, and they sing the glories of Hor-em-Heb. They describe him as their protector, and declare that he will surely do that which the gods desire. This is standard stuff. The new pharaoh appearing before the gods, and they honour him, praise him, and look forward to his achievements. Then again, there is some important detail here. The gods, or their priests, specifically mention three places. They say that Horemheb will do that which the gods desire within Karnak, Ipet Sut, Heliopolis, Iyunu, and Memphis, Hikupetar. In other words, Horemheb will honour the gods in the sanctuaries of Amun, of Ra, 
and of Ptah. The great creator gods, masters of their cities, would benefit from Horemheb's rule, and the statues of the gods attending the coronation looked forward to that, and they shouted out their praises. This speech may have genuinely happened. The priests may have actually said this. If they did, it was surely a pre-prepared speech. You see, Horemheb, as king, came to these ceremonies for two reasons. He came to celebrate a coronation and glorify himself, but he also came to set his public agenda. Horemheb used this occasion to announce his goals, and one of those goals was restoring and embellishing the houses of the gods. Horemheb's goal of renewing the temples may sound familiar. If it does, you're not going crazy. This part of the text references the Restoration Decree of Tutankhamun. About 13 years before Horemheb took power, King Tutankhamun's government issued a magnificent proclamation. They declared their intent to renew and restore the temples of the land. Horemheb was a high official in that government. In fact, he was one of the leading officials of that government. So he was involved in that proclamation, and he was probably also involved in the restoration itself. So now that he was king, Horemheb used the language of Tutankhamun to establish his own agenda. On the day of his appearance before the gods, he renewed the promise that Tutankhamun had made, and he made it part of his own agenda. We will dive into that later, in a different episode. For now, let's just say that Horemheb used his coronation to reiterate things that he, and other officials, had already done in the reign of Tutankhamun, and he presented those things as his initiative, a part of his agenda as the pharaoh. Anyone reading this text, or present at the ceremonies, would have known that the restoration was well underway, but of course, that did not matter. Horemheb was king, and he could decide what history would record. Finally, Horemheb's coronation included one last ceremony. The king had come south to Karnak and Luxor. He had met with Amun-Ra and received Amun's blessing. He had taken the crown, Weret Hekau, upon his head, and he had received the praises of the gods. Now, Horemheb could officially declare his identity. He did this by announcing his names. For over a thousand years, the Egyptian pharaohs had used five names, five titles or epithets that gave them a unique identity. These names followed a certain pattern or formula, but they could also vary quite significantly in the details. Studying these names, you can get a sense of a ruler's agenda, or at least their intentions. So when Horemheb appeared before gods and people, it was a valuable opportunity. Horemheb had ruled Egypt as king for at least a few months, and before that, he wielded great power as an official for many years. That history and experience was an asset. Unlike most pharaohs who inherited power as children or teenagers, Horemheb could incorporate things that he had already done. He could use his past achievements as a foundation to build his royal identity. So, the new king stood before gods and priests in the king's house at Karnak, 
and he revealed, officially, his names as the Pharaoh. Quote, Then the great names of this good god were fashioned, his titles being like that of Ra himself. The names were Horus, the victorious bull, the one who is clever of plans. The two ladies, great of marvels, in Ipet Sut, Karnak. The golden Horus, who pleases Ma'at, the one who caused the two lands to appear. The king of southern and northern Egypt, Joza Keperu Ra, the appearances of Ra are sacred. Setep En Ra, the one whom Ra has chosen. The son of Ra, Hor Em Heb, Horus in celebration. Beloved of Amun, given life forever. End quote. Horemheb's intentions are clear, just from looking at his names. He calls himself the Clever of Plans, suggesting that he has been, and will be, an effective administrator and governor. He describes himself as the Great of Marvels in Karnak. Again, presenting the new king as one who has, and will, achieve splendid monuments and spectacles for Amun-Ra. Horemheb calls himself one who pleases Ma'at, who caused the two lands to appear. That might sound weird, but it simply presents the king as one who follows the traditional paths, and maintains order, or ma'at. It also gives Horemheb credit for establishing, or re-establishing, stability and prosperity in Egypt. We'll dive into that idea another time. But the first few names that Horemheb used presented him as a skilled governor who would achieve great things, and follow the god's path. Then, Horemheb gives his throne name, Joza Keperu Ra. You can translate this a couple of different ways. It might be, sacred other manifestations or appearances of Ra, meaning that the forms of Ra, in the morning, day, evening, and night, are all valid and holy. Alternatively, you could translate Joza Keperu Ra as, one who is sacred of the appearances of Ra. This version would put the emphasis on Horemheb himself, making him a sacred being connected with the sun. The pharaoh's names can be surprisingly tricky to translate. The way they wrote them allows for multiple interpretations, especially for certain phrases. That could be intentional. Maybe a king like Horemheb wanted to glorify Ra and himself, and a name like Joza Keperu Ra did both at once. So translations can be fiddly, but either way, we get a sense of Horemheb's agenda. Surprisingly, Horemheb's royal name is very similar to those of his predecessors. As a king, Horemheb was Joza Keperu Ra, and that Keperu Ra has shown up multiple times in recent reigns. Before Horemheb, Kings like Ai, Tutankhamun, Nefer-Neferu-Aten, Akhenaten, and Tutmose IV had all used a royal name that included Keperu-Ra. The idea, basically, is that this period, the late 18th dynasty, was particularly good for Ra and the theology of that god. The forms or appearances of Ra, the Keperu, were a target of worship and praise for multiple generations. So Horemheb's name as a pharaoh is nothing new. His predecessors had all used some form of Keperu Ra. The new king simply continued that. But you may be wondering, why didn't Horemheb take a different name? 
This king has a reputation for rejecting the deeds of recent rulers, especially the Amana pharaohs. Why would he choose a name so similar to theirs? The short answer is, it's complicated. The idea that Horemheb was overtly hostile towards those rulers might be misguided. In future, we will explore that hostility, quote-unquote, in greater detail, and we'll see how far it stacks up with reality. But for now, the king's name raises an interesting point. Horemheb has a reputation as the enemy of Amana, but things may not be so black and white. Hor-Emheb, Horus in festival, appeared as pharaoh. He was Djoser Keperu Ra, sacred are the appearances of Ra. The new king had revealed his agenda. He would continue the naming practices of recent generations. But he also took the opportunity to establish his goals. The new pharaoh aimed for greatness. He would be excellent with his plans, great of marvels, especially in Karnak. He would follow the ways of Ma'at, the path of order and security, and he would bring balance to the two lands of Egypt, ushering in a renaissance period. It was a bold statement of intent. The new king, who had once served in government, now took control. And his goals were ambitious. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. My special thanks must go to the priests, Linda, Terry, TJ, Yola, Mykost, Andy and Chelsea, Jason, Kendra, Evan, Kyla, Nidin, Stephen, Ashley, and Mark. My thanks to you for carrying the statues of the gods in procession and helping the deities to praise our new pharaoh. Also, a special welcome to Morgan, who joined the priesthood in May 2022. Folks, you are all too generous. Hopefully, the greatest gods, Horus, Seth, Isis, Nephthys, Nekbet, and Wajet, and the Ennead themselves will bless your travels, honour your achievements, and make your parties splendid. To everyone who supports the show, on Patreon or with donations, thank you as well. You are most kind. And to everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you have enjoyed this tale of ancient Egypt. Onwards to the next chapter. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.